This podcast is brought to you by the Toronto School of Management's NCA Exam Prep Program. The TSM NCA Prep Program offers internationally trained lawyers courses taught by practicing lawyers in Canada, expertly designed study guides, exclusive networking opportunities with top Canadian law firms, and employability sessions arming you with all the tools you need in order to hit the ground running in your pursuit to practicing law in Canada. To find out more about the program, you can email ncaprep at torontosom.ca. Shot of Life, a podcast aimed at highlighting the personal journeys of professionals and entrepreneurs in Canada, taking a snapshot of the person behind their professional title. This is episode 21. Our 21st guest is Professor Steve Jordans. Professor Jordans is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto Scarborough and director of the Advanced Learning Technologies Lab. He has won many awards for both his lecturing and for the technological innovations he brings to online learning. Those innovations are meant to deepen learning while enhancing community. On the fun side, Steve is also the lead guitarist and lead singer for his hobby band, The Freakin' Lolas, and he loves riding his Ducati when he needs to clear his mind. He is also a staunch advocate for critical thought and for issues related to how humans treat animals. Hi, Steve. Hey, Anton. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today. I look forward to it. Yeah. So, uh, Steve, normally I speak to internationally trained lawyers on this podcast. The podcast is geared to providing a platform of interviewees and uh, listeners to learn from each other in in sort of navigating the accreditation process and all the steps that are that are involved in that. And through this, I've sort of started to take some steps outside of that bubble. Um, and Steve, you're, you're kind of uh, one of those guests. You're, you're a unique guest, and I think, but, but a very interesting and useful guest for the listeners to learn from. So I, I was hoping at the very beginning of all this, if you could just introduce yourself and what you do. Sure, yeah. Um, so my name is Steve Jordans. I'm a professor of psychology at University of Toronto in Canada. Um, the, um, I think most relevant thing that kind of will introduce me to your, to your group is, um, I like to teach large classes. I've always liked it quite a bit. And to the mm. point where my intro psych class now is 1600 students. Mm. Uh, and so that has led us naturally to embrace some e-learning and ed tech as, as part of what we do. And in fact, has encouraged me in my research. So I was, I was originally trained as a, a cognitive psychologist. I did a lot of research on human memory. Uh, but I've also shifted my research to focus on the effective use of, of ed tech to enhance learning, especially skills-based learning, which may come up. Uh, but what that means is I'm kind of in the, in the ed tech world from, and, and the e-learning world from multiple sides, both as a you know, producer of e-learner, as a producer of ed tech, as a consumer of ed tech, and as a researcher of all of the above. And so I, I kind of live in the, in the e-learning world. Mm. Cool. Yeah, that, that's really good. And I hope that that introduction helps the listeners understand a little bit more about why I'm speaking to you, to you today. Um, you know, I, I guess from let's let's get sort of a broad perspective, I thought, um, first and foremost, and given your your research and your experiences with e-learning, um, what's your take on what education providers are doing at the moment, you know, with COVID-19 having sort of really 
put e-learning on the fast track and and causing a lot of you know long-standing traditional institutions to start getting up to speed um, so i'm wondering in your experience now and looking at um what's happening around you what are your thoughts what what's what's going on what is for instance the university of toronto doing in yeah in, so yeah. you know a lot of these universities pre-covid had this sort of intense group of people usually organized around the center of teaching and learning they would be the ones that would attract these kind of professors who were, you know, really interested in the science of learning and, and in potentially breaking down barriers through things like massive open online courses and other things. And so there was always this core of, of people that were in the e-learning space, and they were literally the real science of learning people. Mm. And then there was the mass of faculty who were doing more traditional learning things. And, and when I describe COVID sometimes, I describe it as a forced migration mm. where, you know, all those people who lived in the world of traditional education suddenly got pushed in into the world of e-learning where there already were some some really group uh, you know a group of kind of high-minded pedagogical people mm -hmm. who are now trying their best to enculture this this new group uh, the problem is it takes about three years to get uh, an e-learning uh, you know an ed tech course uh, really functioning the way you want to mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of these people coming into the space are, are brand new to the space and so I think that's what's going on at a lot of universities is trying to find ways to support and enculture the, these uh, more traditional uh, educators into the world of e-learning and the potential that it has, you know, that, that it's not just necessarily a watered down version of traditional learning, that in fact, there's potential to do something that's really great, but it requires a lot of retooling and relearning on the part of the faculty. Uh, and this is a faculty that often focuses more on research than education. And so now they suddenly have to focus very heavily on education. Right. Yeah, of course. And it like is you this sort of forced migration into the e-learning space. Um, have you seen examples? I mean, you, for instance, you've got a lot of experience in this. And so you're sort of ahead of the curve. Have you seen other examples of where this seems to be going well? Because uh, I hear a lot of stories about how it's really difficult for um, you know, quote unquote, old dogs to learn new tricks in terms of, you know, getting, getting visions of professors, you know, older professors trying to figure Zoom out, for instance, yeah. in terms of how yeah. to do it. So have you seen examples of where it's working well and what makes um, that kind of go well? Like what, yeah. what intrinsic sort of ingredients are needed? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely seeing that, you know, necessity is the mother of invention sort of approach here, where, where a lot of the faculty who literally would not be in the space if they had any choice in the world are suddenly realizing that's where their job is now. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, we're seeing it literally across the scale. And, and let me see, say, you know, myself as well, you know, what, just to give one example for myself, I, I still taught in a traditional lecture hall at a traditional time. So I was still giving one hour lectures. And, you know, as, as I've gone into COVID, one of the things, you know, I had this on my mind for a while, but one of the things I've done is changed all my lectures now to be, you know, roughly 10 to 25 minute chunks mm. that focus on much more specific, you know, two or three points that I want to make really, really clearly to the students. And now they're able to kind of consume that and walk away, think about that, let it kind of gestate a little while and then come back and get the next chunk. And so, you know, it's changed, it's changed my teaching, I think, for the better. My students are hearing a lot. But for a lot of the educators, I mean, we can kind of tick off, you know, their first problem was how do I get my content online? And it wasn't necessarily how do I do this in the most engaging way? 
It was, how do I do this? Mm. Uh, and so for the first year, it was just, you know, like you say, learning Zoom and, you know, figuring out what some of these tools are that allow these things to happen. And then the next step, of course, was how do I assess this learning? Uh, we're all about credentials at university. So how can we do that? And we're still, I think, having trouble with that one simply because of academic integrity uh, right. kind of issues. But now the third piece is, is the one that I get most excited about is what about these experiences you have students while doing while they're learning? You know, their opportunity to actually work with the information they're getting, thinking about it deeper, drawing connections. Uh, and so these could be writing assignments, you know, depending on discipline, they can be all kinds of things. But that's in my mind where the real learning happens, both in terms of getting a deep understanding of what you're learning and also in terms of exercising your critical thinking and your creative thinking, your communication skills, you know, especially in the law profession. Lawyers, you know, live and die by their ability to think critically, think creatively, and communicate well. Uh, and and these are the the situations I think which are lagging behind a little bit. Like I think a lot of e-learning, yeah, we're getting the content out there in a, in a way, not the most grabbing, not the most engaging, and yeah, we're kind of doing assessment all right. Um, and I think sometimes when we just try to do those old traditional activities online, that's when they feel like a watered down form of learning right uh, but that's where i think the greatest potential is to do cool new stuff as well mm. yeah and i i maybe i just as you were talking i had a couple of those cool new stuff technologies that i might want to ask you about toward the mm -hmm. end of the podcast to get your sure. your thoughts on that but um you mentioned you know for inter for, for well for international for for lawyers in general um learning online and in, in actively engaging with with the content you know case law and things like that can yeah. be tricky if you're just sitting in your bedroom you know listening yeah. to somebody preach as it were and then you're meant to sort of take all that information in and you don't have a classmate next to you to yeah. sort of bounce an idea off of or give you know an eyebrow raise and say what <laughs> to so what so like for for this internationally trained lawyer space let me just say that there's an accreditation step that's required and a lot of these internationally trained lawyers are coming from jurisdictions where english is not the the primary language and so engaging with the material is difficult in and of itself because you need yeah. to effectively study one year long course in a traditional JD program on your own and write an exam. So a lot of them enlist the help of tutors and because of the nature of COVID now there's a lot less in-person learning and mm -hmm. so people are looking to get the help of tutors or prep programs. You know the University of Toronto offers a master's program for internationally trained lawyers. So how you know if 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 you imagine an internationally trained lawyer let's say from from india um and they really want to engage with the material and learn but they don't know sort of where to start and how to look or effectively critique online offerings you know what i mean like how do you know when one if one tutor is good and one tutor is bad so what what are some key things in your mind to look for if you're looking in paying for a service for online education what what things should be there to ensure that you will learn in the best way possible as as far as you'll be able to tell yeah i, I mean that's that's the trick right because what it'll come down to some or what you got to sort of get around at some point is a question of the marketing you know who, who in this space some of these people have funding so they have lots of money and they can do great marketing campaigns and have fantastic websites mm. um, that does not necessarily mark them as the best learning experience uh, and so i i, I kind of suggest a couple of things um, one of them is to directly 
ask them to, to look for at least on their programs or on their website, some description of what their proposed learning outcomes are. You know, what do they claim you're going to learn after going through that experience? And can they provide you with any evidence of that at all? Uh, is there any evidence base behind the technique they're using, the approach that they're applying? Um, and then the other thing I would mention is, is there any ability for you to connect with uh, previous students in the course? Do they have a discussion forum or something that they offer to their previous students that they might let you uh, guest in just to ask some students what their experience was? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but here's one thing always to keep in mind is that so often when we think about learning, we think that the goal is the transfer of information. Uh, and so we'll sometimes ask people, you know, do you feel like you learned a lot? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we're really saying is, did you get a lot of information out of the course? What I really recommend, especially in a field like lawyering, uh, and, and where I think the great discrimination will be is in the practice. So when you're learning some skill, you can learn a lot about that skill uh, from somebody telling you about it. But if you actually want to develop that skill, you now have to engage in it. And, and usually you're not very good at the, at the beginning, but with repeated structured practice using that skill, the skill gets better and better. So I almost would recommend people kind of look at it like a musical instrument training course sometimes. Think mm-hmm. of it from that side. And literally, if you get a chance to talk to students or to talk directly to the, the provider, what are you going to do that's going to um, exercise my critical thinking skills during this or my creative thinking skills or my communication skills? What part of the courses are, are specifically designed to exercise those sorts of skills? And if they have no answer, which I think a lot of them will, hmm. That should be a key to you that that they're really just trying to, you know, download information to you. And, and what you probably need is the ability to interact richly with that information. That's what separates great e-learning from eh, e-learning. Mm, right. Yeah. And I like the the sort of example you gave of sort of musical instrument um, teaching mm-hmm. in some ways. So like you, you teach something and then you have to practice it. Right. Um, exactly. And so that kind of leads into the next question I had. So. On the other side of things, if I'm a tutor, if I'm a teacher within a program, how would a teacher or a tutor optimize student engagement in an online learning environment, sort of yeah. reaching through the screen to grab them and to hold their attention? You mentioned now that you're te- sort of teaching in 15 to 20 minute sort of yep. sections. Do you think that's effective or how, like if how can, a, how can an instructor now grab the attention and maintain focus of their students? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's critically, uh, instructors hate to hear this kind of thing, but mm-hmm. imagine your student is sitting at a computer and your lecture is there, but what else is there right in front of their eyes? You know, mm-hmm. every social media platform, um, YouTube, uh, et cetera, there's all these things that are tempting the, the learner to kind of go down some other rabbit hole for a moment, take a little bit of break and do this. And that break turns into two hours. Mm-hmm. That's your competition. And, you know, we don't like to think of it that way, but I think to some extent we should think of it in the sense of, well, what are these other, what are these other things doing that is making them so engaging? And, and they involve things like shorter periods of time. So, so a person can really, and cognitive psychology wise, by the way, that fits too, because we can only kind of think about, well, there's this, this famous seven plus or minus two things at a time. But I think even that's a lot. You know, I think if you give a student five new things that they've never interacted with, or even three, you know, in a lecture, that's good to let them kind of chew on that for a little while before adding more to the plate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that, you know, understanding what they're able to kind of 
really grasp, but also presenting it in so so there's this notion of uh, pattern interrupts. Um, I've I've been interacting too much with marketers uh, lately, <laughs> but marketers with um, commu- uh, excuse me um, commercials and such will continually change something. They don't just have you see the same image uh, for a full 60 seconds. They, they typically change things around every now and then. And we're not gonna change it as much as they do, mm. but a really good idea, if you can bring in a little YouTube video or connect with something else to kind of change the pace of the lecture, that keeps the engagement. A couple other things I'll mention really quick. I, I have a paper about engagement where I, I talk about what I call the RIFS text taxonomy, R-I-F-S. And that's like when you're preparing your lecture, if you can try to make it relevant, if you can somehow make it interesting, maybe leveraging curiosity or something to try to get people interested before you present the information, if you can make it fun, or if you can make it social. So relevant, interesting, fun, or social. Those are things that tend to grab uh, the learner's mind and, and, and have them with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we can use that. But then the other big point I would make from all this is Think of the lecture as the beginning of a learning process. And in the best cases, we follow the lecture with some assessment of what we just taught the student. Mm. Just ask them some questions about what you just taught them. Uh, That really reassures them that they got it. When they go through those questions and they get them right, they're like, okay, cool, I got it. Uh, And it also gets them thinking about the information again in a different way. And if every now and then you can ask them to do something very active with that information. So I think of things like concept maps, like at the end of a unit, you might put them through this, this process of saying, here's two things you learned about in this, in this section. How related are they? And, and in what sense are they related? And if you ask them about a bunch of pairs of things that they learned about and you get them thinking about it in that way, then they end up with a really deep sort of sense of how all this information is interconnected. Uh, and, and those are very active approaches to learning. So mixing this passive, listen to me, but don't expect too much of that. And then follow that up with some practice, working with the information you just learned. That's how you kind of get it from the mind more to sort of the body or second nature. Right. Interesting. And then just thinking as you're talking, I can kind of see where the growing pains would exist as a lecturer in this forced migration online where you're you have your sort of set way of getting the information across to the student in a in you know in an in-person environment and when you're forced to go online i'd imagine a lot of lectures you know there's a lot of things you have to think about and perhaps one of them isn't about um, innovating how you do it it's more sort of let's get this stuff online and get it out so i think I, that kind of seems like something that will come with time and sort of involving new media like YouTube or making things fun with technologies that you learn about now that you're forced to. And an example I sometimes like to throw out there just to get people thinking is, is like the craft world. So imagine craft beer. You know, there were, there were regular beer pe- people producing regular beer according to a specific recipe for, for a very long time. Uh, and that's sort of the traditional educators are just following that traditional recipe that they grew up with. Uh, but then there are some people who start to say, no, no, I want, I want to craft a really interesting learning experience. And I want to mm-hmm. think about all the nuances, all the ways these different components interact. And, and that is what those previous people in the e-learning space were. They were real you know, craft educa- edu- educational experience providers. Mm-hmm. But to learn that craft, you, know, you have to really think about how, what are all these components? What role can assessment play other than just measuring learning? What else can I do with assessments? Uh, and so there's a whole lot of theory and there's a whole lot of data behind a lot of this stuff. 
Um, and it's a whole lot of theory and data that your traditional educator sometimes has never come into contact with. And so it's kind of like, yeah, you've been producing this okay beer for a long time, but, but now that okay beer won't quite make it in an online world. You got to learn how to do something really much more interesting, but that's going to require you to learn a little bit about the components of craft beer and how they work well together. And that's why I say it sometimes takes about three years for an educator to really be happy with the online course they've created. Right. And I can imagine as technology continues to improve, the now the role of the educator is sort of keeping on top of that and learning different ways in which to engage the audience. You know, at first it was Facebook was big. Yeah. Twitter became synonymous with instant updates, you know, and then now TikTok is really popular because what happens when you open a TikTok app? Immediately the engagement starts. And so I think it's just gauging where technology goes and sort of trying to keep at least half an eye on that to see if there's something that's new that might be able to help in the way that you, you know, disseminate the information for your students. Well, well this is actually where I think the educational institutions are going to have to do um, a, a more proactive job. So we're getting beyond a point where faculty members, individual faculty members can just choose technologies kind of off the shelf if, if for no other reason than student privacy, data privacy. You know, it's, it's going to be much more, I think, a world where an institution will identify, let's say, five to 10 technologies that they will hopefully, you know, vet very carefully in terms of pedagogical goals, in terms of sort of non-overlapping um, things that these technologies provide. And then hopefully they will also support it very heavily so that when faculty say, oh, I'm, I'm really trying to develop critical thought that um, somebody can say, well, here's two or three technologies that do that really well, and we know how to help you with those technologies to get up and running. So I think we're going to see a lot more central role and, and a lot more pedagogical vetting and evidence-based vetting of technologies rather than just letting faculty kind of, you know, <laughs> go whole hog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. I can see that. Um, no, so... If I'm thinking about the traditional, like even not traditional, like a year ago today, I would be yeah. sitting in a lecture hall with like 500 other students. And I mentioned, you know, raising an eyebrow to a, to a classmate or, um, you know, there's just this certain buzz that you get from being in an in-person lecture. So now that that's been sort of eliminated and it, not forever, but I yeah. think online, you know, this, this melding of online and in-person will exist um, moving forward. How do you think instructors or lecturers can um, effectively involve group think and group activity? Because I think, I think that is probably a really good way of learning. I know that when I was in law school, for instance, the most effective way of learning was not necessarily sitting in a lecture hall. It was in those twenty-person tutorial rooms, where you where you work with people and you have instant feedback from your from your classmates. Have you seen examples where, in practice, that's working well, or what sort of where do you see that going? The involving the involvement of group activity. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the COVID's this big black cloud, mm -hmm. <laughs> for sure, but mm -hmm. it does, but it does have some silver linings every now and then. And I, and I think one of the silver linings is people are realizing, um, let me say it this way, I think it used to be a pretty abrupt shift that a lot of students went through from what we would call the breadth courses. So those are those 500 seat classrooms you talk about, mm -hmm. uh, where you're mostly being lectured to, and, you're, and your task is mostly to memorize a whole bunch of terminology and such. And then suddenly you find yourself in a third or fourth year class where you're told you're going to get up in front of the group mm -hmm. and present and you're all supposed to have this very deep intellectual discussion about what's going on and and students feel like i'm, I'm not ready i can't do that i've never done that before 
we're using technologies now in some really interesting ways to support. So my first year intro site class, we just had a group work project. Uh, and the technology we use is one we created in the lab called Peer Scholar, but essentially students log on to the beginning of that and they have essentially a Google Doc, they have full chat capability. And so what we have is a sort of digital surrogate um, for that small room discussion you've talked about. And it's not as rich as the small room, but the nice thing is we can do it in very large introductory classes. Uh, and, and we can also get them to gauge you know, who contributed to the group work at the end, which is, which is critical for making group work work. <laughs> That's where mm -hmm. you get through the freeloaders. Um, and, and so they can be going through digital human interaction experiences in say first and second year and laying a lot of those foundations um, but they still have the, the real critical difference is it's not real time in the digital world. So mm. they can react to people's comments, they can digest them, think about them, decide how they're going to reply back. And so everything happens in a more leisurely pace in a digital world, but it gives them that practice. And now if we bring them into the, the third or fourth year seminars where they have worked in groups and they have interacted with other humans and they have taken on different roles, et cetera, so they've experienced group work but they haven't done it eyeball to eyeball yet. Mm. Um, you know, in my view, that's how we're going to see universities change. That human time, the time when we have students together is the time we're really gonna be working on the humanization of a lot of these skills that we would be developing digitally up until that time. Um, and that's really the way I think we can best serve our students. A lot of content delivery we can do well online. What we can't do is this eyeball to eyeball interaction. And, and for me, you know, what I always have in my mind as an educator is the ultimate test of how, how well I've done by a student is to imagine that student in an interview for a job they really badly want. Mm. And they manage to land the interview. And now they have to get through that hour of sitting at a table with, you know, four or five other human beings asking them questions. Do they have the skill set they need to impress in that situation? Um, and, and that's the one that's going to determine whether that, you know, the skills the student needs to succeed there are also the students you need to choose a right uh, partner for life, etc. Mm -hmm. Critical thinking does us good in all sorts of ways. Um, but that's, I think, that's the benchmark that I have in my mind and that I'd love to see students prepared for. Great. So um, just moving on from that a little bit and putting myself back into the shoes of the students. So yeah. I'll bring you to the internationally trained lawyer space and there's the NCA exams, National Committee on Accreditation Exams. They were held forever in person in international test centers for everywhere from, from Delhi to London in the UK to Calgary, Alberta. Um, and there are people you register for the exams. And then in some cases, if you're in India, you fly to write your exam in person. Um, and so it's a big, it's a sort of big event, right? And so now yeah. with this forced migration of online comes the, the rejigging of the system, as it were, and now exams are being administered online. So there have been hiccups, there have been glitches with the accreditation exams. And I sort of think that sort of their they're faultless in some ways because of the sudden urge or need to go online. So not every you know thing was thought of ahead of time. Um, so the, the glitches I think are improving, but I'm wondering from your perspective and your experience in, in administering online exams, if you have done, um, what are some tips that let's say the internationally trained lawyer could think of prior to going into an online exam? Yeah. 
So, so I mean, the, the first thing to really realize is this is one of the great challenges of e-learning. In fact, I think it's probably the toughest thing we're facing is, you know, we, we all are giving accreditation, we're giving grades, and we want those grades to be valid. Um, and that's why we always like to have that human being in the room where we could verify their identity and do all that kind of stuff. And, and once we lose that, um, it becomes very difficult for institutions to find ways of uh, assuring the validity of, of the accreditation they're giving. And so what that sometimes means is they'll make changes to the way they do the exams. I'll give one explicit example in a moment, but let me just begin with this, this um, suggestion, which is familiarize yourself with how the exam is, is going to happen. Like, you know, learn as much information as you can about it, but don't get too upset about any specifics because sometimes there are things that we do in online exams that that can make an exam experience even more stressful. Mm. Uh, and so let me just be clear about that. One of the one of the issues that's being debated a lot is do we use timed questions that the student cannot return to? Uh, and so for example, there's research that suggests that if you just give people a minute to answer uh, a typical multiple choice kind of question, they don't do any better if they have an open book than if they do not. So a minute is sort of not enough time for them to, you know, busily find the answers and such. And so a lot of uh, people are, are liking to say, okay, you got one minute to answer this question. And then when that's over, the question goes and you can't go back. And that helps us maintain academic integrity. But it also means, you know, some of the luxuries you had in previous exams of going back and checking your answers and doing whatnot uh, are gone. And, mm -hmm. and so if you're a student like that, you just have to accept that's how it is. It's, it's how everybody, it's the same game that everybody is playing that's writing this test. So mm -hmm. familiarize yourself with it, but then just accept it and then practice it. You know, if you can literally, there's two great reasons um, to practice, but if you can, you know, either find old tests or work with somebody else to, to create your own questions, which is what I would really recommend, mm -hmm. you know, pretend you're the assessor and make part of your study the creation of questions. Uh, that's going to make you think about the material the way the assessor thinks about it. Uh, and you'll start realizing that you're actually interacting with the content a little differently. You're starting to think, how can somebody ask a question about that? Uh, and, and that will kind of set you up really well. It's what we call transfer appropriate processing. Your mind is in the same place at study that it'll be at test. Mm. Uh, and so that's what I would say. Find out what it is. Don't worry about the details. But then to the extent that you can practice that format, practice that format, give yourself what we call retrieval practice. We all think it's about stuffing information into our heads, which we call encoding. And, and that's important. Encoding well and encoding deeply is important. But so too is practicing getting that information out of your head. Uh, and that's called retrieval practice. And, and we know there's something called the testing effect, which is if you make testing yourself part of your study, that's much more powerful than just studying more. Mm. Uh, some extra mojo to, to going through that retrieval practice. Right. Makes sense. And then just to give you some insight into the world um, that internationally trained lawyers are in, and again, if they're coming from jurisdictions where English isn't their first language, um, a lot of them <clears throat> or a lot of them are interested in enlisting the help of a tutor or a program because it's sort of seen as a solution to something I don't want to, you know, it's, it's in some ways daunting to think I have to do all these exams and I don't know the content and I'm not comfortable really with the language but what it sounds like is it's really worthwhile 
thinking critically about things. And even if you do enlist the help of tutors, they are not sort of the proverbial gods in the space. Um, you do have some responsibility in getting that information. And I like the idea of formulating your own questions because then yeah. you're thinking like the examiner. I've had podcast episodes where, you know, it becomes enlightening to know who is who are the examiners? Who's designing the test? So in, in some ways you get a sense of where they're coming from and then that can help you in terms of how you revise. hundred percent. I, I literally, I give my students the same manual that I give to my teaching assistants. So the teaching assistants do create questions for my class fresh every year because I don't trust the internet having yeah. old ones out there. Um, but I give them some specific manuals on how to create these questions. And, and these manuals sometimes include insights that, a, that an undergraduate wouldn't consider. For example, you know, when we create these multiple choice questions in my class, we use something called Bloom's taxonomy, which is this notion that you can try to tap how well somebody has, has gained the information at different levels. You can do a very surface, so kind of ask them almost ask them a question almost just like they read it when they studied or when they first heard it. But other times you can ask them to apply that information to new contexts or to, you know, compare and contrast two bits of information. And those, those other levels get at a deeper understanding. So when you kind of start to understand, oh, yeah, there's sort of three ways you can ask a question. And these assessors are, are kind of thinking these three ways when they are creating the questions. Uh, and then you start using those three ways. And, and, you know, one of the really creepy things that happens that every student tells me is they'll come and say, you know what, I, I created this question and, and it was on the exam. My question <laughs> was on the exam. And I say, well, yeah, because there's only so many ways to ask about this stuff. Right. And, and there's a pretty good chance that if you do this with yourself, you will stumble on something very similar to what you see in the exam. And that's kind of part of the point too. You sit at that exam, you look at the questions and they already seem familiar familiar is not the right word you you have kind of learned the process of creating these questions and so when you see them you're like yeah okay mm -hmm. this is all what i expect and so you start with that level of comfort and you just attack the questions and, and that's the mindset you really want uh when you're sitting and writing right yeah interesting very interesting i hope you know the listeners because this is this sort of the accreditation thing is either you have an ability to take an llm which is a master's of laws and you kind of negate the need to write the exams in most cases, or in the large majority of students or candidates will be doing a self-study, right? So this is all I hope really useful information and tips for them. So just moving on a little bit, um, something that like I've had the, the director of the National Committee on Accreditation on my podcast, and what we've had, we've had a couple of conversations about um, acknowledging that this is all very new. Um, regardless of, you know, it, it's sort of like everybody's in the same boat, the accreditation body, the candidate, the student, in your case, the lecturer and the student, there's a lot of people in the same boat trying to make a go of this. And sometimes what's lost in that is the student mental health aspect yeah. of online learning. And, you know, we've heard some feedback, just anecdotal feedback saying there, there is a challenge here where, you know, you don't have that sort of positive feedback. You don't have the same level of comfort and camaraderie with classmates. And so what in your work um, have you seen in terms of how institutions, lecturers, and even peers can help support student mental health? Yeah. And, and let me just, you know, very quickly highlight that point. I had a chat with a, a student of mine who was uh, from Hong Kong, and he was mm -hmm. very much looking forward all of last year to this sort of vision he had of a North American undergraduate 
graduate institution, you know, mm -hmm. coming to University of Toronto and being in the hallways with all the students and on the quad and all that kind of thing. And, and he was finding it very um, challenging and depressing to be sitting home in Hong Kong. And this, this was his University of Toronto experience now mm -hmm. was you know, a few online courses. And I, and I sympathize you know, 100%, especially because, as I said, the profs are just learning the craft as well. And so the, the courses you're getting are not as good as they'll be two or three years from now uh, as this develops. And so it's a, it's a very challenging time. I mean, luckily, the institutions are also aware of some of these things and are trying not to be, you know, as, as tough. But when it comes to mental health, let me just mention a few things. And, and one of them, um, at the beginning of this in March, I created a free online course on Coursera.org. Uh, if you search mind control, which sounds really ominous, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. what I mean is learning to control your own mind during this age of anxiety. So it's 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 formally mind control managing anxiety during COVID nineteen, and and I give a whole bunch of tips there um, about just in general managing your anxiety, but specifically um, for for exam writers. I talk about this notion of guided relaxation uh, using learning how to really relax your body and relaxation is the opposite of anxiety mm. so the right way to make yourself less anxious is to make yourself more relaxed that's that's the approach that works uh, and you can learn how to do this so in that in the course I, I give you some tools and it's just a matter of you know before you go to bed doing one of these guided relaxations and, and really getting familiar with how that feels and when you get really good at that then let's say you're sitting at that exam and you're starting to feel your anxiety raise or while you're studying, you're, you're feeling it, you can kind of push it back. You can kind of banish it from your body, uh, which just allows you to do the best you can do because anxiety just gets in the way. Uh, so there are tools like that. Um, but, but the other things I, I would mention, I, just to kind of touch back on what we did before, it's so easy to get stressed out by the unfamiliar or you know, like, like something like, what questions are going to be timed? I'm only going to have a minute for every question. And, and that can get you thinking all these negative thoughts where, where you really have to say, okay, this is what the exam is. This, this is the bar. Mm -hmm. And if the, the more dispassionately you can accept the specifics of the exam and then just go about the business of saying, okay, how, what, what things can I do? Because empowerment is very important uh, for mental health. What are the concrete things I can do to assure that I'm going to do the best I can possibly do on this exam? Because all my fellow students are in the same situation. Uh, and so now it's now it, it is sort of to some extent testing my knowledge of the law and my ability to, to self-manage myself through this challenge. Uh, and so let me see that as part of the test. And let me learn from podcasts or whatever, some strategies that I can use to ensure that I'm doing all I can to do as well as I can. And, you know, if that's where you're at, then, then you should feel like that's what you can do. Um, and, and um, yeah, you know, giving that your, your, your all. Now, I'll mention a couple of things that really make mental health tricky with online learning. Uh, and we all know these things, but, but they are procrastination and distraction. Um, you know, literally, sometimes you know you have this exam coming up and you know you need to be doing stuff and you're not doing it. Uh, and that can drive you absolutely crazy. So a couple of things I'll just mention really quick. Uh, for procrastination, the key that we all know is just sit yourself in front of the learning environment. First of all, have a learning environment that's free of as much other stuff as possible. That's just a place where you learn. Mm -hmm. And then just get your butt there. Uh, once you start engaging with the learning material, then there's something called the Zygarnik effect, which is this, this 
um, thing we have, deep psychology thing, that we don't like unfinished business. Uh, you know how every TV show, you know, right before the commercial, they're going to unveil, I don't know, the masks <laughs> yeah. or something, but yeah. then they make you wait, right? And we all feel that, like that makes us want to come back and see, see the rest. It's that unfinished business. And we've known this from, you know, a long time. And so there's these weird tips that go like the following. Let's say you have, you know, five modules to learn. Don't do a whole module and then stop. Either do less than a whole module um, or get into the next module, begin that next module and then stop. Um, but if you leave it as unfinished business, it will tend to pull you back to that chair. You, you, you'll be more likely to come back and return to the learning just as you are with the cliffhangers on TV. So, you know, learning some of these tricks and using those can help you feel good because when, we, when we're prone to distraction or procrastination, we just start beating up on ourselves. Uh, and that's one of the easiest things we can sort of tame and say, no, no, I'm, I'm plugged in. I'm where I should be in terms of my learning. And now if we're doing some of these other strategies too, then you should be feeling, you know, relatively confident. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I've, I've heard feedback as well from people who it's finding that that effective learning environment, even if it happens to be a desk in your, in your basement or in your bedroom, it, it's sort of manufacturing that space to be about learning right to yeah. to rid you know don't bring your phone with you keep your exactly. tabs closed um exactly. and just sort of it's like when i hear i've listened to some podcasts and there are writers there who suffer from writer's block or you had i mean i think a lot of writers can suffer from the same procrastination you're talking about yeah. and a lot of the time i th i hear people say just sit there and write yeah. <laughs> like that's really what you have to do you you can't think about writing and you can't wait for inspiration for studying um you have to just sort of get there and read the first three lines and maybe write a summary and then that kind of gets you going gets the motor going yeah and one, one trick to kind of do that is to budget it um to, to have a time you know at seven o'clock i go down sit in front of that computer in that learning space and and that is my time and and those in my family know it's my time you know, and, and that's what I'm going to do. I, I sometimes find that some of you guys probably will resonate to this. When I went through undergraduate, I bartended and I worked a ton of hours. Mm -hmm. The more hours I worked, the easier it was for me to get my schoolwork done when it had to be done. You know, <laughs> I only had very little periods of time. And so that was my time to practice, you know, get ready for that exam that was coming up. And, and I would do it really well. And I was very proud of myself as I worked fewer hours and I had like four hours to get that hour in. It got harder to get that hour right. in. Right. Uh, so sometimes, you know, kind of tricking yourself and saying, I'm going to budget all my study time. If I do extra, fantastic. But certainly during those times, that's time when I'm walking away from whatever I'm doing and sitting down in front of the learning experience uh, mm. and going. Oh, great. Interesting. And before we close, Steve, I, I, I had a couple of questions. Um, well, I, I guess one one bigger one that I that I thought was a bit fun to get your your sense on. Um, okay. You know, a couple of years ago, you know, I fancy myself interested in, in the markets, you know, and you're looking at the next sort of wave of technology that's going to be um, interesting in terms of an investment. And, you know, it was blockchain. And another one of them was artificial intelligence yeah. and, and also um, virtual reality. So I'm curious, I always thought, and this is just me spitballing here when I used to sit at an office desk, <laughs> you know, and think well, I, this is the next big thing kind of thing. And my friends would always kind of make fun of me and say, oh, here we go. But I always thought like, and I think it's still going to be that way, but augmented reality or virtual reality. Um, 
will eventually make its way more prominently into the education sector. You know, you hear these pitches where people say, one day our grade five class, instead of going to the ROM, will be able to go to ancient Egypt um, and, and actually, you know, really experience what life was like. And in some ways, I think for lawyers, you know, instead of practicing your mooting in front of a mirror, um, you can sort of augment the reality to be in a courtroom or something like that. And I think that's really cool. <laughs> but yeah. I wonder what your sense is on that technology. And if you think, this, like I do, that that's kind of coming and, and what that might look like. Yeah, cool. Wow, you sparked off a bunch of things. So, so we, certainly <laughs> yeah, people, we certainly have people trying to do the VR stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's cool. I've seen some really neat ones trying to develop human skills where you're, you know, sort of seeing yourself interacting in office environments and somebody um, says something inappropriate, let's say, and, and you're supposed to detect these things and, and call them. So it's something for teaching, uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but but here's, a, here's a thought when you said augmented reality, here's, here's what I would love to see. Uh, which is a breaking down of the walls of the classroom. So I would love it if your technology knew which subjects you were learning, let's say. And now imagine there's a Google Glass or your smartphone or whatever, but as you're now um, walking around the world, so let's say you're learning about chemistry and perhaps mm. you drive by a waste treatment facility uh, that you might get some sort of ping or notification saying, hey, you know what, there's a whole lot of chemistry going on over there. And would you like to learn a little bit more about what the chemistry is uh, that, that involves that uh, so that you could start to have embedded learning in your life? Remember that engagement thing. The first letter was the R, which is the relevance. Hmm. If when students see the relevance of what they're learning, um, that, then that can really heighten their interest in learning. So in the law, you know, I can even imagine dedicated um, sort of notifications from news feeds where legally relevant cases around the world you know, maybe get pushed to somebody. Uh, and so that they can start to see all oh, this stuff I'm learning, there's a case, you know, maybe it's maybe it's about torts or something that they're learning about. And now they're getting pushed some cases about that. So notifications uh, that are sort of augmented reality slash bigger ones that are directly related to what we're learning to, to keep in igniting our sense that, hey, this matters, what, what I'm learning matters. Mm. I think that would be really cool. Um, some of the some of the fancy VR things are limited to scale simply because they need the tech. Uh, mm. The students need the tech, uh, and sometimes they need the space <laughs> in order to, right. to interact in. Um, but there's a lot, whole lot of fun in, in those. Uh, you know, I, I literally um, the AI thing will be huge um, simply because it's a fancy word for math and stats, really, mm -hmm. really <laughs> the way it's being used. But to give you one taste of some of the cool ways that's coming in. Um, the technology that I'm most proud of that we created, we have students giving each other feedback and learning both how to give feedback well, but also how to um, learn from feedback they're given, which is a very challenging task. Mm. Uh, and, and it all depends on the tone of the feedback. So we have some AI routines that are literally analyzing the tone. So as this person uh, sends their feedback, it can get flagged. It can, it can be told, you know, red, sort of red, orange, yellow, green. Uh, where the red orange is this kind of saying, you know what, it's a little pointed the way you said that. And it, right. you, you could be causing some offense. Do you, you want to take a look at that again? And so the idea here is the AI is, is sort of trying to hone those human skills, you know, what we might call emotional intelligence, I guess, um, at the point before, you know, it's kind of like it leaves your mouth 
but before it gets to the receiver, there's this little thing in there going, are you sure? <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you want to think about what you said? And, and I think on a, all of our emails, we could probably use something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, they have now like the, the sort of plug-in Grammarly, which has helped me a lot in terms of just flagging up all the grammar errors. But then exactly. one other perhaps for tone would really help rethink the way you send emails in a in a huff or in a you know in yeah. a split second yeah. yeah it's like a little jiminy cricket on our shoulder <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah well I, uh steve i i really appreciate your time i know how busy you are and i i think it's been really enlightening for me you know like i say normally i'm interviewing internationally trained lawyers and that in itself is enlightening to learn about you know for instance a guest of mine Olufakemi from Nigeria, who went to Ireland, who then came to Canada, really cool, interesting stories. But to sort of, you know, go beyond that a little bit and learn, learn about the online learning, because everybody's now confronted with it and, and the online examinations. I think it's been a, a huge help and a really interesting conversation. So uh, thanks again, Steve. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Anton. I, I enjoyed it very much myself. does it for episode 21 of the podcast i'd like to thank steve again for joining me and talking a lot about the the innovations and some of the struggles that exist now with the merging of traditional in-class learning to online platforms sounds like we're not all quite there yet in terms of mastering how we navigate maneuver around some of the challenges that exist in online learning and the development of online courses um, but with professionals in the field like Dr. Jordan's, I think, you know, it, it's exciting to think about what the future has in store for us in terms of some of the technologies we spoke about. I mean, augmented reality, um, AI and things like that. It's really interesting. And I hope that um, in particular, those of you who are taking classes online or those of you even um, who are teaching classes online, learn a little bit from, from Steve about how you can study, how you can prepare, and how you're able to deliver lectures effectively so that people take in the information and it's not lost on them or they're not, you know, checking their cell phones while they're on Zoom and on mute, things like that. So thanks again um, to Steve for joining me and I hope uh, everybody learned a little bit and can take something away from this episode. Until next time, we'll speak again. Mm -hmm.